you have to know what the people want, right? So that whole element of what's your culture, how do people work, how do they want to work, and really sort of understanding the fundamentals of the natural dynamic of how people interact with space, how they choose to work, what technologies do they need, and then bringing those three worlds together. They have to work together because if they don't, you won't be successful. Sandra Panera spent most of her career working in workplace, but not actually calling it that. Today, we're gonna to talk a little bit about all of the ways that she's seen workplace, commercial real estate, and facilities management evolve over her 25 plus years, helping companies of all sizes design really great workplace strategies. Let's hear what she has to say. I'm really excited to talk about specifically the workplace strategy as a, as a function, as a role, and, and a skill set that I think more, more companies are starting to value. So when did workplace strategy become a thing? I think for me, it was probably around 2007, 2008. So prior to that, as I said, I was at, I was actually at Nike at the time and I was doing a lot of space planning, occupancy planning, uh, working with the interior designers, working with the business units around, you know, business was always changing. The business units were growing or shrinking or, you know, and constantly reconfiguring space and trying to figure out how to do it effectively. And uh, when I transitioned over into consulting, there was a large financial institution here in Toronto that was my first project. And uh, I went in, you know, to basically be the, you know, the person, the, the local person. And uh, they started talking about workplace strategy. And I was like, what is this workplace strategy? Because that was a relatively new term to me. And as they started talking about it, it was just really about, you know, how do you figure out the design? How do you figure out, you know, what types of spaces do you provision? How do you optimize space? And all of the things that I had been doing prior, but it never really had a label. So that was really, I think, the first time that I, I learned about the term workplace strategy. I was like, oh, okay, this is what I do. <laughs> what did people call you before that? Well, it's funny. In my experience, the roles that I've had in the past were very generic. So I had titles like uh, administrative services, office services, facilities manager, occupancy planning. You couldn't really pinpoint exactly what you were doing. You're essentially doing anything and everything that was office related that didn't have anything to do with the direct product. And so in the early days of my career, you know, I was doing things like lease negotiations and setting up security badging systems and, you know, just basically anything and everything, writing the reports, looking at telecommunications, you know, purchasing systems and all of these different things that I think for me, that's what made sort of the position that I was in or the positions that I've maintained since really unique is that having the experience of working with those tools and learning them very deeply and then what the reporting is that comes out of them and how does it apply to space planning, which came later on, was really, I think, the key for me in terms of the success that I've had in my career. So you had mentioned earlier that uh, at least for part of your early career, you were on a corporate real estate team. Some of our audience may not have their heads wrapped around yet what that is compared to, let's say, facilities management. So do you recognize the difference between those two? If so, like, how would you define the role of corporate real estate? It's kind of a little bit of a hierarchy, right? So you'll have, um, you know, typically uh, someone who's leading the overall 
corporate real estate strategy, which includes things like location strategy, deciding you know what markets you want to be in. Also, in terms of building strategy, so whether you want to lease or own uh, the buildings. Uh, the design strategy. So what's the look and feel of the space? Is there going to be consistency from one market to the next, or is it going to be unique to each of the individual markets? So those are just some examples. And then you have the day-to-day operations, which is kind of where facilities typically falls in. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, as I experienced, facilities management also can be an encompassing category, right? So just because the title is facilities management, Strategy could be under facilities management. It really just depends on how the organization is structured. Do you see workplace strategy as an evolution of corporate real estate strategy, or are those two separate camps? I kind of see it as an evolution because I think that, you know, you have all of these different groups that are doing different things. So, for example, thinking about, you know, in the past doing lease negotiations where there's decisions that are being made about, you know, uh, growth in a specific market. And so it's like, okay, we need to have an office or a location in this particular market. And so you'd go out and, and, you know, lease some space. And so the evolution to me is when you have access to data, you have the ability to observe where are your people? Where is the talent? How do you use that information to make decisions and to validate whether the decision that you're about to make about space is the right one? Right. And so it's not so much that you're using it to tell you what to do, but it certainly can help inform what you want to do. Um, So one of the things that we hear uh, a lot as we're working with offices that are trying to reopen, and I'm curious your perspective, is this is often the first time that you have people with facilities backgrounds and IT backgrounds and then people operations, HR, all having to, to work together. Yep. towards this overall, call it workplace strategy or workplace. And in your experience, is that something that a lot of teams are having to figure out for the first time right now? Or is it primarily like facilities used to run all of this and now they have to open the doors to let these other groups in? Um, how, do you, how do you see that relationship evolving over time? Traditionally, in true workplace strategy, experience and form, those three have always worked together. You can't actually do strategy if you're operating as a silo. So it's not an HR uh, an HR exclusive function. It's not an IT exclusive function. And it's not a facilities management or corporate real estate function. The three have to work together. I've always looked at it from the standpoint of, if you're purely looking at it from the standpoint of corporate real estate, from an asset perspective and IT in terms of where are you going to invest your money? You know, I've always used the, the, the term or the, um, the statement of, you know, if you're going to invest in something, invest in the technology versus the real estate, because the technology will enable your company to grow without growing your assets. But there's also the HR aspect, which is the people side of it. And so you have to know what the people want, right? So that whole element of what's your culture, How do people work? How do they want to work? And really sort of understanding the fundamentals of the natural dynamic of how people interact with space, how they choose to work, what technologies do they need, and then bringing those three worlds together. They have to work together because if they don't, you won't be successful. I think somewhere in the last two to three years, folks started to realize that, hey, maybe workplace isn't just a synonym for the office. Correct. Where you see that most interesting uh, 
realization is probably facilities oversees this physical bricks, sort of actual square footage. And then you have IT over here who's now overseeing almost like this digital workspace. And the two of those together both make up your overall workplace. And uh, it's not just tied to a single uh, address anymore as, we, as we've come to think about it. For those teams working together uh, for the first time, any advice? Yeah, I mean, I think from the, what I've seen in, as of late anyways, because I'm seeing more and more companies that this is new to them. So this whole joint venture of approaching technology and you've got corporate real estate has an interest. IT, IoT certainly has an interest. There's the people side, although we don't necessarily surprisingly see too many HR people at the table. It's usually IT and corporate real estate um, coming to the table. Um, but I think there's a lot of emphasis on the technology, right? It's kind of the, the what, yeah. what are you going to put in place and, and what does it do and that kind of stuff. And not as much emphasis on the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. So there's a lot of, you know, attraction to the shiny things of, hey, this is really cool technology, let's put it in. And then not really understanding the outcome of that. So the, what's the data going to tell you? What's the data that you're going to get from this new technology? And how's that going to help you in terms of developing your uh, your workplace strategy. I think the other part is privacy and security is key, which is probably, well, not probably for certain why IT is at the table. Obviously with more and more virtual work requirement for people to be able to continue to do their work uh, that way and just to connect is, you know, privacy is, and sorry, not privacy, but security is of utmost importance. And so obviously, you know, there's, there's a legitimate reason for IT to be at the table. And likewise for HR, right, is that mm -hmm. you've got privacy purely from a security perspective of making sure that, you know, stuff isn't leaving the organization, but then also uh, HR having to balance the privacy aspect from an employee perspective, because that's something that's also top of mind for organizations as well, especially when it comes to the employees, because nobody wants Big Brother to be watching them. And so communication is really key around, you know, what are we doing from a technology implementation point of view? How much data is going to be collected? What's the company's position on privacy? What kind of information is going to be collected? Why are we like, why are we collecting it? What are we going to use it for? So it's not just, hey, let's buy technology and put it in. It's having sort of that complete sort of thought out idea that you could communicate to your employees while you're also talking to various vendors. If you're trying to reopen in a flexible environment, like what are some of the things you got to keep an eye on data wise that previously you might not have? I would say probably the most important metric right now is just understanding occupancy, right? So mm -hmm. rel and occupancy is an interesting metric because there's different angles to that. There's occupancy as it relates to trending based on, you know, the, a date range, or you mm -hmm. could be looking at occupancy relative to a capacity, right? Full floor capacity, building capacity, or room capacity, or whatever the case might be. What we're seeing with return to office is companies will set a threshold, 20%, 30%, that they slowly increase over time. And then you want to make sure that you're not exceeding that number from a purely from a safety perspective, right? As mm -hmm. you're trying to slowly bring people back to the office. The other thing is from a 
a space perspective. So let's think about meeting rooms. Actually, it's funny. I was talking to someone this morning about this. You have, let's say, a 12-person room or a 16-person room and new protocol now because of social distancing says that, you know, you shouldn't have more than whatever, let's say 50% occupancy of that room. And so, you know, you want to be able to ensure that people are actually adhering to that policy. And so how do you measure that, right? So that becomes complicated unless you have technology that allows you to do that. People can, you know, book a space and say, okay, I'm going to invite X number of people to the room. But we all know from experience that sometimes people get brought into meetings, you drag in a chair and suddenly you've got more people in the space than, <laughs> than should be in the space. And so that's going to become much more critical to, to manage and to sort of oversee. I think going forward, you know, because of the reduction with uh, people working from home or working from third places, not as high a dependency on the office space on a, a daily basis, but there's still going to be a requirement to maybe more so to observe uh, what those occupancy metrics are going to be. Because when you're one-to-one, you know that you've planned your space for, let's say, 100 people. Now, all of a sudden, you might have 200 people sharing 100 seats that are available, and you could potentially have more people in the space than should be in the space. And so that's going to become increasingly important going forward. I guess the cost savings aspect of it does would, would seem appealing on, on, on face value. So is it important for folks to consider the cost savings as they're trying to redesign their, their workplace strategy? Or is flexible work at this stage more about repurposing the sort of office that you have to support a growing workforce? Thinking back in the past, cost savings, although I I always disagreed with this, was always a driver, right? And cost savings, I always said, is an outcome. It's not a driver. Anytime you're looking to optimize space, there's going to be an outcome where you are going to save money, right? And I think that that still applies today is that if you're looking at how can you make your space more efficient, uh, it's either going to be that you're going to save hard dollars or you're going to avoid taking on additional space. So there's still a savings that's coming out out of that. However, I did want to say something where you mentioned earlier, not having an assigned seat requires a, a major shift in mindset around you have to now think about, do I need a space? Do I need to reserve a space? Uh, What kind of space do I need for how long? These types of things or these behaviors you never had to think about before because you just had the routine. You had a desk, you showed up or you didn't show up. That's where you dropped your stuff off and you worked for the day or part of the day. And so, you know, the transition from going uh, from a space where everything was there waiting for you to now having to actively think about what do you need to do and what space or tools, because space ultimately has become a tool, do you need in order for you to be able to achieve your objectives um, is at the forefront. And that's a a big struggle for a lot of people. What's the role of the office now in in a post-pandemic, flexible, hybrid work world? It's going to be sort of a hub for collaboration. And that's kind of been, you know, at the forefront in terms of a lot of the discussions around what the future purpose of the office is going to be. And I think that's probably going to make up the majority of what the purpose of the office is going to be, maybe even for like talent attraction and retention. So again, as we were talking at the beginning about brand experience of bringing new employees into the space and kind of immersing them into the brand so that they feel connected to something, unless you can recreate it virtually, which in some instances you can, um, 
you know, some companies might find that there's greater value to doing that. And so that's, that's kind of up to them. I think also the aspect of for the people who can't work from home, because we've also known, you know, from the get go that it requires a certain kind of discipline sometimes to work from home. And some people just don't have it. They don't want it. <laughs> or, you know, there's just there's other things that are that get in the way of being able to be effective when you work from home. And so having the option to be able to go and, you know, work from the office, maybe not every day, but, you know, if somebody chooses to do so, then so be it. The reality is prior to the pandemic, if you really looked at the data, I'd never seen people who were in the office four or five days a week in the office, eight hours a day for more than maybe 10, 15% of the overall population. So those would be the people that are hardcore you know, should be assigned space. But the interesting thing is, is those people rarely collaborate, right? So they're more administrative staff. They're there really to support like the executives are there to kind of do more of the day-to-day -day administrative management. And so it's interesting when you think about that, it's like, well, that makes sense that those people should have an assigned seat because they're sitting at their desk the entire day because of the type of job that they're doing. But you've got people that go into the office four days a week, five days a week, but they spend... 30, 40, 50%, maybe higher collaborating, right? And yet they have assigned seating. So it's this constant movement of people between focused space and collaborative type spaces that makes up really the gist of the workday. I think it's okay, uh, personally, uh, to, to not have the office be great for all kinds of work at this point. It, the, it can be deliberate with the type of work that it is trying to support and focused work. I don't know. It, it might be less, less important, but i um, curious. What do you think? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The other thing that I find that's really fascinating um, is, you know, the, um, for lack of a better word, I would say sort of the emergence of these third and fourth places, which technically have always been there. So you say how, you know, companies that have had, you know, work from home policies, which probably were very few prior to the pandemic, in, in the sense of it being formalized, everybody true, had true. some sort of work from home activity that was happening. It was just never fully formalized. Right. So it was like, yeah, the business unit leader allowed it. You know, some business unit leaders did, some didn't. And so it was kind of like, OK, you may do. So now you're in a state where you have to put some sort of policy and so that it applies to everyone. Um, but I think the whole aspect of the office and, you know, where does work happen, right? This, this idea of if I want to have a face-to-face -face conversation or I even want to do heads down work and I don't want to work from home, you know, I could go and work at a local coffee shop by myself for the day or go to the library or go sit in a hotel lobby or wherever. It doesn't have to be a traditional office setting, whether it's a co-working space or, you know, the corporate headquarters for that matter. And I think uh, as we talk more and more about, you know, the pain of commuting, which again, that's been something that's been looked at for, for years. When you think about location strategy, you know, you'd go and sort of understand where does your workforce live? And then you'd pick on a map, the ideal location of where the building should be so that people don't have more than 20, well, I mean, Canada, so 20 kilometers distance, which is I think around 12 miles or so from a commuting perspective. Yeah, I don't know enough to correct you. So we'll go with that. <laughs> we'll yeah. go with that. Yeah. It's just because yeah. I Googled it the other day. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, like distance these days really doesn't mean anything because you've got traffic, 
right? So if you're driving, you have uh, time, which is a factor. And then just the access to transit, like as you get more and more urban sprawl, you know, transit isn't readily available unless you live in certain parts of the city. And so it becomes pretty complex. And so I've always been baffled why the headquarters are predominantly always located in the city centers. And when you look at where people live relative to the city centers, you have a lot of people living out in suburbia, but yet there's this push to bring everybody into the office downtown. And so as we think about, you know, the future of the office and the purpose of the office, it's this thing of, well, does it still make sense for the offices to be centralized? And what does that look like going forward? Right. I think there's a really cool opportunity, it seems, for um, with like a hybrid work week where the expectation is not that you're coming in every day. It might actually increase the reach of a single office to, to attract talent. And so suddenly I may not I may live two hours away, let's say, and uh, that might not be a, a really appealing idea to drive in five times a week, two hours one way. Um but if it's one day a week, you know, maybe. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that companies will probably come to understand that they're, they're actually able to, to hire people further away from the office if they adopt a hybrid model as well. I, and I, I agree. I think that that's certainly something that uh, has happened, uh, is happening, and will continue to happen. Uh, you know, the idea of being able to make a personal decision around the frequency um, that you're going to access the office, you know, can be a personal one. So again, personally, from my own experience, um, you know, I moved north of the city five years ago, uh, where from where I live right now, you know, thinking about where I used to work, which is over a hundred, again, hundred kilometers away. So I'm probably about a good hour and a half hour and 45 minute drive one way. If I was to drive to work, um, you know, when I used to work at the other company where I used to work before, I used to go in once a quarter, like I was fully remote, right? I didn't necessarily have traffic to go to the was office. that bad, huh? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? And it was fine. Like the company was national, so you know the team was scattered across the country. And often going to the office didn't necessarily mean that I was going to be working with people in person. And that's, I think, the thing that is ironic about hybrid work is I think people are still thinking that going to the office means that people are all going to get together. And that works if you're a small company that you're local in the city and people will come together. But as soon as you have multiple offices in other cities or in other regions, that element of virtual work is going to continue regardless of whether you're doing it at home or in the office. And maybe even more to a greater extent, because people now are going to be making the choice of do they want to be in the office or not? And is it going to be on the same day that you're planning to be in the office? If I was on a corporate real estate team and I was looking at potentially renewing a lease at this point for the space I already have, what advice would you give me? I would say uh, take a look at your occupancy data from whatever sources you have. So if it's your uh, security badging data, uh, your Wi-Fi data, there's sources that you have available to you that are as close to real time. Uh, at least providing you current information, not necessarily going back to historical data and get a sense of if you're expecting, for example, a thousand people to be in the office or that's kind of how your space was planned, uh, but you're only seeing, you know, two, three hundred people a day 
on average show up, that's an indicator. Now that doesn't mean that you should be cutting out 80% of your space. I've actually talked to a company that did that where they're like, we're just going to get rid of the space and just kind of whenever this blows over, we'll reconsider leasing the space at a later point in time and save some money in the interim. So if you're, you have an imminent lease that's coming up for renewal, you know, there's an opportunity there for certain to reduce at least by 20, 30%, even if you're not looking at occupancy data. We all know that, right? Just because I said that's what the use was before in virtually every single company. But it really just depends on where your organization is from a cultural perspective, right? Because there's a, there's a bit of a tug of war happening with the need for the office space and, you know, um, what does that mean at the end of the day and how much change is actually going to be required from a culture point of view. And I think that's what's going to enable you to decide how much space you could get out of or you just hold off for another year or so if you can go to like a month to month or, you know, just renew for a shorter period of time and wait it out because, you know, you don't want to be committing to a whole bunch of space and then find out that, you know, you've now changed direction because you don't need as much space as you initially thought you did. So it's a bit of, you know, being in limbo, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because it gives you time to really understand how your people are using space. On the flip side of that, you know, I've also um, uh, talked to a couple of companies that, you know, are taking advantage of the market right now is that there's a lot of space and there's some good deals out there. And if people or companies are thinking that the office is going to still have a, a very sort of prominent place in the future, then they're going to capitalize on the market opportunities right now to sign those lease deals so that they can take advantage of the cost savings. Links to learn more about Sandra and her work can be found in the show notes. If you want to learn more about the work I'm doing, go to robinpower.com. I'm Zach Dunn. See you on the next episode of In the Works. In the Works.